Welcome to my digital talk on the US election. This series of conversations on the presidential election in the United States is possible thanks to the support of the Austrian-American Partnership Fund, which promotes collaboration and exchange between Austrian and American non-governmental organizations, universities and professional associations. I have a very special guest with me today, Richard Fontaine. Richard Fontaine is the Chief Executive Officer of the Center for a New American Security. He served as President of the Center for a New American Security uh, from, 20, uh, from 2012 to 2019 and as Senior Advisor and Senior Fellow uh, in the period prior to that. Prior to uh, the Center for a New American Security, he was also foreign policy advisor to Senator, Senator John McCain and worked at the State Department, the National Security Council and on the staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Mr. Fontaine served as foreign policy advisor to McCain 2008 presidential campaign, so he is certainly familiar with the US elections. And my first question for Richard is, uh, as expected, dedicated to the possible election outcome. Now, if we look at the preliminary uh, results, uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump remain neck and neck in the election race. Uh, so it's a very, very close uh, race, so to say. Would you explain, please, a little bit uh, about your expectations regarding the election outcome and what is really going on uh, because the European audience will certainly will certainly would like to know more about it. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for having me. Um, it's an interesting time to be talking to you the morning after uh, election day here in the United States, but before we know who the next president of the United States will be in this moment of limbo um, and uh, in the future, I look forward to being in Vienna with you rather than uh, Zooming, but this is a, a good substitute. Um, <clears throat> while in our system, uh, a candidate needs 270 electoral votes uh, to be elected president. Last time, um, Donald Trump got about 330 electoral votes. So even though Hillary Clinton won the popular vote um, by almost 3 million votes, the Electoral College was not close at all. This time, the Electoral College looks like it will be very close. Uh, there are a number of states who haven't completed their uh, counting of the votes, largely because there were so many mail-in ballots uh, that were submitted because of coronavirus, and it's just taking them a while to count those ballots. There was an unprecedented number this year. So where things sit as of you know 10 a.m. here the morning after the election in Washington is that uh, there are a couple of states that are really the key ones that are in play. So you've got Pennsylvania, which we knew all along would be uh, very important, Michigan, Wisconsin, and uh, Nevada. Uh, also, North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona still need to return their results, but uh, if Donald Trump wins Pennsylvania, which is where he's leading right now. And if uh, Joe Biden wins Nevada, 
Wisconsin and Michigan, where he's leading now, then that would put Joe Biden uh, on top with exactly 270 electoral votes. So you couldn't have a closer election. It would be 270 to 269. So uh, there's a few other possibilities, of course. Um, you know, the Michigan could slip from the Biden column into the Trump column. Uh, one of the ones where Trump is currently leading, like North Carolina, Georgia, or even Pennsylvania could slip the other way. So there's a number of possibilities now, but uh, but it seemed, my analysis is that Joe Biden is in the stronger position to win the election uh, than Donald Trump. But the, <laughs> the big lesson here is that we don't know. We just don't know how this is going to come out because of uh, not only the uncertainty around where we are in each of these states, but also just the uncertainty about um, the counting of the remaining ballots and what this looks like. We also don't know when we're going to know. So Nevada, for example, said, uh, don't worry, we will be back to you on Thursday uh, with results. Well, today's Wednesday. And so, you know, waiting 24 plus hours to find out more results feels a bit excruciating. Um, but that's kind of where we are. The bigger point um, here is no matter who wins, and again, I think at this point, Joe Biden is likelier to win than Donald Trump, uh, that president will face a very divided country. Uh, it looks like the House of Representatives will be have a Democratic majority, the Senate will have a Republican majority, and the presidency will either be Joe Biden or Donald Trump. So you will have a divided government uh, between the two parties in a very divided uh, divided country. And, uh, and that makes it hard uh, to marshal national solutions to some of these big global problems and the kinds I know that we're going to talk about today. The polarization that you've named um, due to the possible U.S. election outcome has been, in fact, already in place uh, during the Trump uh, Trump's administration and probably will be accelerated uh, to some extent uh, following uh, this election. But what is uh, your expectation when it comes to the um, implications for the U.S. Uh, foreign and security uh, priorities and goals? So we are right now in the middle of a great transformational phase where the United States is uh, facing um, an increased, let's put it that way, you know, Chinese activities everywhere in the world. But then again, it's also looking for credible and loyal uh, partners and allies. So how do you think this uh, U.S. election outcome is going to impact the U.S. foreign and security policy? Um, and what would be your concrete expectations in terms of uh, the future uh, foreign and security policy agenda of the United States? depending on who is going to win, of course. Yeah, that, so the, the, the depending on who's going to win is the important part of your question, because if you look at, uh, there's almost two separate issues. One is the divisions in the country, the political divisions, and what do those look like in terms of foreign policy outcomes? But the other is who wins, with the who wins being actually the more important part of this, simply because if you look at Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden's approaches to foreign policy, they really are very, very different in a lot of ways. I mean, there's some some areas of similarity. They both would like to end the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria. Uh, you know, they they both want to um, 
have you know trade and other economic policies that will return manufacturing jobs to the United States. But once you get out of those kinds of areas of commonality, they're very different. Donald Trump doesn't make climate change a priority at all. Joe Biden puts climate change at the top or the very top. Donald Trump wanted to get out of the Iran nuclear deal. Joe Biden says he'll get back in. Donald Trump withdrew America from the World Health Organization and other international organizations. Joe Biden says he'll get back in. You know, uh, Donald Trump is not a big fan of American alliances and thinks that they sort of take advantage of the United States. Joe Biden says our allies are kind of our greatest strength and things like that. So depending on who's in there, you can see a very, very different set of priorities over the next four years. And of course, as we were just describing, we just don't know who that whose priorities are going to be followed on the uh, on the division part. However, there's um some areas in which, you know, things just get harder. So for example, uh, in a divided government where it is, it's hard, it, you know, the, the, the government right now has not been able to come up with a, a second package of uh, economic stimulus for coronavirus relief. Now that's a, a largely a domestic policy issue, but given the size of the American economy and, and everything that the United States does in the world, it has some significant foreign policy implications. And then I, th I think they will have uh, one after the election, but, you know, a divided government makes it harder to do it than one that's more unified. The other thing is the difference in threat perceptions. So right now we're in a kind of a strange situation where, you know, the polling shows that Republicans uh, put the threat of uh, China at much higher than Democrats and Democrats put the threat of Russia much higher than Republicans. And, uh, and, and so there's, there's uh, less consensus than one might like about how to rank foreign policy priorities and therefore what to do about those priorities in the world. Um, and that makes it harder to generate domestic support for particular policy outcomes and so forth. Um, you know, the one thing that and, and of course, that's also true on other issues like climate change, where Democrats say this is a very high priority. Republicans say it's a low priority and so forth. The one area that everybody can agree on right now is that pandemic is, you know, beating back the pandemic is the number one priority. But once you get below that on all the other issues, whether it's terrorism, great power competition, um, you know, meddling in, in democratic elections, uh, trade policy, Iran, North Korea, you see cleavages between and, and within the parties. So what it means is that you need a very strong uh, presidential vision about where to go on these and what to prioritize first, second, third, and so forth. And that then puts us right back into the, well, it depends on who's going to win. Yeah, right. And uh, obviously there is a kind of polarization also, as you pointed out, when it comes to the U.S. Uh, foreign and security policy towards uh, China and Russia. And there is uh, an interesting quote, by the way, uh, which I've read recently uh, regarding information warfare. Mm -hmm. which we obviously faced uh, during the COVID-19 crisis uh, in uh, Europe particularly. And that quote says, uh, if Russia can be seen as a hurricane, China is the climate change. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Now, yeah. I would like to focus on the climate change first and foremost, because um, if there is one major battlefield uh, in a more rhetorical way, put in a more rhetorical way, <laughs> this is going to be how to face China, in what way. And I would like to ask you concretely what your expectations are, you know, how the US-China relations will be uh well will look like in the next years um well once again as seen through the lens of two different administrations do you think for instance that uh biden's administration would actually use or you know go back to the uh, obama's approach or uh and if how exactly this would look like and the same uh, goes for um you know trump uh, 2.0 right will uh, a systemic decoupling for instance which i think is one of the most important systemic issues continue yeah <clears throat> i don't think there's any going back to the pre-trump approach to China, no matter who is elected uh, president, whether it's Biden or Trump, I think the country has moved on, the world has moved on, and China's moved on. So for years throughout, you know, the Bill Clinton, the George W. Bush, the Barack Obama administrations, uh, the engagement policy with China was premised on the idea that through deep engagement with China economically, diplomatically, in terms of information and everything else, that China would see an increasing stake in the global order, become a more responsible actor, and possibly become a more liberal country at home in terms of its democratic practices and, and human rights and, and so forth. Of course, none of that has happened. And, and at home, it's become more repressive than it used to be, uh, not less. And internationally, uh, seems to uh, want to have a more dominant role and including building alternative structures to existing elements of, of global order when those don't suit uh, Chinese perceived interests. Uh, and so both Republicans and Democrats in Washington have gotten significantly more skeptical of Chinese behavior and intentions. Uh, and I don't think there's any return to the idea that sort of full engagement with China with maybe some hedging on the side is the way to go. And instead, what will replace that, whether it's uh, Trump or Biden, is a long period of deep competition across various domains. And so you can see these in the military sphere where increasingly the U.S. military is being configured not to <clears throat> beat back, uh, you know, terrorist threats in the Middle East, although that's a important role or to you know, conduct large scale nation building opportunities in the Middle East, but rather to deter against Chinese military behavior in the Indo-Pacific and if necessary, defeat it. On the economic side, you know, I think the decoupling of the economies is, is not actually happening, not at a systemic level, but certainly in key areas it is, it is as uh, companies are rethinking their supply chains, uh, as U.S. government and other friendly governments are are prodding their private sectors to diversify away from China for a whole variety of reasons. On the technology side, certainly there's greater walls going up um, on the American side and on the Chinese side as well, to some degree, um, that bifurcate the technology ecosystems of the United States and China. Uh, and then there's a competition for 
influence, polit political and geopolitical influence um, in the Indo-Pacific, but not exclusively, also in Europe and in, in Africa and, and in, even in Latin America. And I think what you're going to see is a period of long-term U.S.-China strategic competitions across all of these domains. Uh, the, the big question, and I think this is really just an unanswered one, is if you look at the Trump administration, there's really very few areas where they have sought U.S.-China cooperation. I mean, cooperating against the coronavirus should be the sort of natural area where even despite our competition, we all have a common interest in seeing this coronavirus stop and not spread. Nobody has an interest in seeing infections continue to rise and, and all of this. And yet there's no U.S.-China cooperation at all on a vaccine or on preventative measures. Um, if Joe Biden comes in, one of his big priorities will be climate change. And that is an area, at least theoretically, of U.S.-China cooperation. And so the question is, is it possible to carry off cooperation with China on some big areas like climate change, like on global health, maybe on nonproliferation, maybe on North Korea, while at the same time, you're pretty fiercely competing with each other in all these other domains on, on you know, diplomacy and military and technology and economics and Taiwan and everything else. Um, and it's not clear to me that those things can be done simultaneously. Um, but if Biden does win, that's gonna be an early test of, of the overall strategic approach to China. Obviously, if uh, we uh, witness uh, a new administration led by a democratic, the Democrats' uh, candidate, John Biden, one thing that we need to uh, elaborate on is uh, the future relation to, to, to Russia. So let me remind you that during the Obama administration, the relations with uh, Russia uh, were uh, in fact improved uh, within this um, so-called Russian reset approach. And if you remember also, uh, we've witnessed this awkward situation when, uh, you know, um, the uh, Russian foreign minister was given a red button uh, with the wrong uh, word for reset, which actually meant overload. And this, I think, is a pretty good uh, you know uh, summary for what we would expect during this uh, administration where obviously as you've pointed out russia is going to be uh, priority number one to tackle uh, among the foreign uh, uh, challenges right so what is your expectation that uh, in in terms of uh, future us uh, russia relations and also of course uh, given that Trump uh, wins uh, and obviously uh, kind of a um, very slow approximation um, effort has failed, uh, what would you what would you expect in that matter? If, for instance, Trump has to shape the relations with Russia in a second uh, mandate? Yeah. So tr the Trump administration. Uh, was the third U.S. administration in a row to try to reset relations with Russia. I mean, the Obama administration, as you described, was the most obvious and conspicuous in this. But if you remember, George W. Bush met with Vladimir Putin and said he looked into his eyes and he got a sense of his soul 
you know, this is a man we can work with and all of this. And of course, U.S.-Russia relations were not very good in the Bush administration, ultimately. Uh, the Obama administration formally reset relations and said, well, they were bad in the Bush administration, but let's start fresh and we'll make them good. Didn't work. The, 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 the Trump administration came in and said, why are we, why are we, why can't we get along with Russia? They're an important country. We should be teaming up with them to knock the hell out of ISIS, you know, all these other kinds of things. Uh, and that didn't work. I think it's extremely unlikely that whether it's Biden or Trump, anybody's going to try to reset relations with Russia again. I mean, it's three straight failures. Uh, oh, by the way, with the same government in Moscow, even though the, the government's changed in the United States. Um, and I think people uh, in Washington, Republicans and Democrats have learned some things uh, over the years. And it's, it's, um, I mean, it's it's interesting to think of Russia as the hurricane and 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 uh, China as climate change. The Russia is a, a declining power, um, but it does not follow that because it's a declining power and the sort of global power balances that it's a less less threatening to the United States or to its neighbors. In fact, I think the opposite is probably true. It has less skin in the game each year. It has less invested in the existing rules of the system. It has a higher tolerance for risk uh, and can be more provocative when it comes to matters as different as, you know, Syria and Ukraine and, you know, sort of provoking NATO and meddling in, in governments and elections uh, overseas. And so I think you're going to see um, really very frosty relations with, between the United States and Russia. The, the strange thing about the Trump administration is, if you only listen to the president's rhetoric, you would think that we get along great with Russia. You would think that the president is best friends with Vladimir Putin, that we're cooperating with Russia. And in fact, the Trump administration's policy toward Russia has been much harder, much, much tougher than the Obama administration's. You know, um, the, the Trump administration provided forms of lethal aid to Ukraine that the Obama administration did not do. Uh, uh, the, the Trump administration sanctioned the oligarchs in Russia in a way that the Obama administration did not. The Trump administration expelled Russian diplomats and closed down consulates in a way the Obama administration did not. The Trump administration attacked Russian mercenaries in Syria in a way that the Obama administration did not. You can sort of go down the list. It's been a very tough policy, but it's totally disjoined from the president's rhetoric and the Helsinki summit and all these things that sound like, you know, everybody gets along really well. Um, and so I think if there's a, a, a second Trump administration, you'll see a continuation probably of this disconnect between the warm rhetoric for Putin and, and all of this with really a much harder underlying policy it, with a Biden administration. I think you'll still see a, a tough underlying policy, but you'll see, um, you know, rhetoric that is more in line with uh, with the underlying tough, tough policy toward Russia. The big missing piece on some of this is on Russian uh, political interference in other countries. And here we see a way that these issues are treated very differently uh, than all the other kinds of things that Russia does. So when when Russia invades Ukraine and, and takes Crimea, it sort of galvanizes the transatlantic partners, there's sanctions, there's a common response, you know, this is a NATO issue, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when, when the Russians will poison Skirpal or someone in, 
in, in England, that's seen as an international issue that merits a common transatlantic response and the Germans coordinate things. And, you know, and even, uh, you know, the poisoning of Navalny and things are sort of seen as international events and they need a common response. When the Russians have interfered with political systems, for whatever reason, it's seen just as a unilateral thing, as a national problem, not a trans, not a transatlantic one. And so, you know, 2016, the Russians interfered in the U.S. election. Only the United States responded. Uh, the Russians interfered in the French elections. Only the French responded. You know, and, and so we need to take as seriously the protection of our own democratic political systems as we do the territorial sanctity of NATO countries and, you know, the protection of our own countries against you know, the poisoning of, of people on our soil and 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 the, and the territorial integrity of our neighbors and things like that, and that I think is the next phase of this, which is to uh, to coordinate efforts to protect our own democracies against Russian meddling, not just our own territories and and friends. Clearly, uh, what you've pointed out uh, leads me also to my personal conclusion about Russia, which I see as this disruptive power that yeah. none of the main uh, competitors wants to see in the other blocks uh, group, so to say, so in the other block, which means, of course, that it's not so much about aligning with Russia, but it's more about not letting others to align with uh, Russia because then it becomes a bigger problem. However, what you've just outlined leads me to uh, also to the conclusion that uh, given that the relations between United States and Russia will deteriorate, um, that would create a certain pressure on Moscow to um, ally with uh, with uh, Beijing. Do you see this possibility for further uh, systemic coordination between Beijing and Moscow in key fields and in key sectors uh, as you know being opposed uh, to Washington and its uh, allies and its partners? Do you see it as an emerge so to say emerging problem? Or do you think it's just a temporary phenomenon which will disappear once Moscow sees itself uh, or its uh, key geopolitical interests uh, being threatened by Beijing? What is your take on that? Yeah, my take on this has changed a little bit over the last couple of years because I, I, I previously was fairly dismissive of the possibility uh, real coordination and cooperation between Moscow and Beijing for all of the reasons that people generally cite for these things that, you know, Moscow would look like a junior partner to Beijing. They don't like that. Um, that, uh, you know, there's still kind of regional tensions uh, between them in Central Asia and, and, and competition and so forth. Um, and that, sure, they can coordinate efforts to oppose what they believe is American dominance, either globally or in international organizations. They can veto measures at the UN Security Council. They can sort of team up to oppose the United States, but that it was hard and perhaps impossible for them to really articulate a positive agenda beyond just being a party of no. But I've actually changed my view on this to some degree because I think the evidence is that 
they are coordinating and cooperating more. And you see this certainly in the economic field, uh, you know, sale of rushing gas and, and things like that. Um, but also even in the military field, you know, joint exercises in the South China Sea and, and, um, and then coordination in international organizations and, and some other things. And all of these are, are I think, relatively kind of minor uh, events and things that on their own don't really do much. I mean, the Russians and the Chinese can, can do joint exercises in the South China Sea, but if the United States and China suddenly got in a dust up there, I don't think anybody believes the Russians would go, you know, defend the Chinese. However, when you add it all up, it looks like the trajectory is of an increasing pattern of cooperation and coordination between China and Russia. And um, the, I think the, that's worrisome. Uh, it's particularly worrisome when it comes to technology cooperation and the ability of those two countries to uh, intervene and meddle in, in democracies abroad. You know, as we started off this conversation, a democracy like the United States has got enough problems on its own without having, you know, other countries try to exploit our divisions and try to weaken the country. Um, however, it's hard to know what one does about this. I mean, one, you know, some of the solutions are often, well, you know, in a world where there's three great powers, the United States, China, and uh, Russia, it'd be better to be part of two than one, right? Um, well, that's kind of easy to say, um, but it's not a clean block for starters. There's not a China block and an American block and a Russian block. I mean, this is not the Cold War uh, with just chess pieces on the board that one could move around at will. And then two, if we somehow pursued some great detente, entente, rapprochement, whatever French word you want to use from international relations to describe what we would uh, try for with the Russians, what does that actually mean? I mean, maybe it could diffuse some of the outreach between Moscow to China, but what's the price of that? Is the price of that saying that Russia gets to enjoy a sphere of influence and it's near abroad the United States won't object to? I think that price is pretty high. Well, it you know, um, that, that, that NATO will, uh, you know, n will pledge never to expand and, and ever again. I mean, I think, again, the price would be pretty high. So it, it's hard for me to see how you would ever have in Washington a U.S. government that would be willing to pay the price of what Russia believes it is deserved as, you know, a global power. I think there fundamentally is a gap in the minds of Russian policymaking elites between the place they believe Russia should occupy in the world, its standing, its status, its influence, and the place they actually occupy in the world. And that's a real challenge. Indeed. And speaking of troublesome relationships, if there was one particular relationship that was uh, quite uh, turbulent during uh, Trump's administration, it was not related uh, particularly to Washington's competitors or rivals, but was actually uh, related to uh, the closest allies uh, on that side of the Atlantic. So I would like uh, to ask you to touch upon 
the issue of the transatlantic relations um, and how do you think uh, uh, the relationship between United States and Europe uh, will look like, of course, once again, depending on the US election outcome, but also how, how in fact, can this relationship uh, uh, be or, or let's say get imp uh, get get repaired right uh, can how can this relationship uh, get better in such a short period of time uh because we definitely reached a low <laughs> yeah i think i think that's um that's well put um here is where i think really uh the election matters a huge amount for two reasons one is because uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are so very different in their approaches to how they think about the transatlantic relationship and the and, and the and the alliances. I mean, you know, I worked on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee when Joe Biden was um, ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I worked for John McCain in the Senate when Joe Biden was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And his background is to really be a fierce believer in the importance of the transatlantic relationship, uh, the institutions that unite the United States and and uh, and Europe, and 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 above all uh, the transatlantic alliances, NATO, and and NATO's partnerships, and uh, and to see great value in those relationships. I think Donald Trump is probably the exact opposite. Who comes in? Who came in and sort of said, "What? What? Why? Wait, we're defending Europe. Explain to me again why, you know, all these decades after World War II, the United States is still spending money to defend Europe against what Russia? I mean, we have bases in Germany and troops. I mean, none of this makes a lot of sense. And 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 the Allies aren't, you know, paying a lot for their defense. They're just getting rich, enjoying our protection, and all this. It's just a fundamentally philosophical, and therefore." fundamentally different policy approach. So there, I think that really does matter. And um, I think if Donald Trump is reelected, you get probably more of the same. If Donald, if Joe Biden is is, real, is elected, then I think you get a much healthier uh, transatlantic relationship. Uh, but then the challenge is, you know, what does that actually amount to in terms of specific policies and actions uh, that we're not seeing today with respect to Russia, China, you know, other challenges in Europe's neighborhood, whether it's Belarus or the Sahel or Libya or the Levant and Syria and Lebanon and things, you know, what does this actually look like? Um, there, there's a second issue though, and and this one is is a little bit harder to, to make out, but I think it's really there, which is, you know, the number one question I've gotten for the last four years when I travel around internationally is how much of what uh, our foreign friends see in the United States is about Donald Trump and how much of it is about America. And I think they're prepared to believe that, uh, you know, some it's some of both, uh, but the opposition to alliances, the sense of kind of America first, the notion that the United States has been taken advantage of by trade partners, by allies, by international organizations, by free riding people around the world, that that's you know, there may be some underlying sort of basis for that um, and some resonance for that, but that this was a big kind of Donald Trump thing. It's pretty hard to sustain that argument if he's reelected. And then then it really does suggest 
this is what the American people want, or at least uh, uh, enough of the American people to get him reelected. Now, I don't believe that a lot of Americans, in fact, it may be true that not a single American voted for Donald Trump because of his position on NATO or Germany and whether Germany pays 2% of GDP on defense spending or any of these other things. But I think nevertheless, it will be read as an affirmation of Trump's general impulses toward key international relationships. And of course, you know, the transatlantic one is the first and foremost. And so, um, you know, a lot rides on who gets 270 electoral votes. And if there is uh, one particular part of the world that is really, and it's not a secret, uh, and it's really hoping for uh, Joe Biden's win, uh, that is uh, on that is to be found on that side of the Atlantic. All uh, European capitals, almost all, probably with very few exceptions, are eagerly awaiting. Um, Biden's uh, win and like you've pointed out uh, one missing component uh, in the future of relations between uh, Europe and United States will be predictability that's been something that you know has been missing in the relations for the last years uh, with the expectations for a change of the leadership uh, due to upcoming elections first in Germany next year and then in France the year after. It is of course um, a very uh, difficult situation in terms of uh, who is going to be also the next leadership uh, in the main capitals uh, that are going to shape uh, the European integration, right? With uh, having, you know, having Brexit in mind uh, this is going to be even a tougher period for Europe. So that is why a second Trump, uh, Trump's mandate will be certainly a very, you know, very uh, serious issue, how to tackle it, how to shape the relations, because, uh, um, you know, uh, all European leaders are quite worried about it, if that's going to be the case. Uh, now, another, of course, issue which has, so to say, um, um, I think um, has um, unleashed a lot of controversy and, um, you know, the views are quite opposite is uh, in terms of the future of the global order, right? Mm -hmm. uh, since we have still one particular country uh, which has uh, global power projection, has still the capabilities um, and the hard power to control maritime routes, supply chains, and to be deployed anywhere in the world. Um, it is, of course, up to the future leadership of this country how the global order is going to be shaped. Now, of course, we are also in the middle of a fourth industrial revolution whose outcome we don't know yet, and we know from the previous industrial revolution in the 70s that it was very decisive for the competition between uh, United States and the Soviet Union. And right now we are having more or less, with uh, minor exceptions, once again two competitors, uh, you know, for uh, riding the wave of the industrial revolution, of this technological uh, revolution. How do you think uh, this um, outcome 
will shape the future of the global order. What I have in mind, of course, is the discussion about multilateralism. I do think that uh, Washington and the European capitals have one understanding about multilateralism as compared to countries such as, uh, such as, such as uh, Russia or China, which also talk about a polycentric world or you know multilateralism with Chinese characteristics. So what is your take on that? And do you think we are moving towards multipolarity or is it rather a bipolarity? Uh, what is uh, also your take on that matter? Yeah, so I think we're moving toward multipolarity, but not equal multipolarity. It's not, um, it's not the United States and Russia and China all as equal power centers, nor is it the United States and China on opposite sides with coherent blocks around them in some sort of G2 arrangement or bipolar competition or something like that. It's actually a lot messier than that for a couple of reasons. One, um, again, unlike the Cold War, you don't have coherent blocks. I mean, the United States uh, and, and the Soviet Union could look during the Cold War and see more or less who was on their side, who was on the Eastern Bloc, who was on the the free world block. And then, of course, there were the non-aligned countries that were sort of up for grabs or countries that, you know, were in then known as the third world that would sort of, you know, align with one side or then align with another and so forth. And there was a lot of competition for those. But, you know, everybody knew which side Eastern Europe was on. Everybody knew which side China was on until China was on the other side. You know, they, they, these were pretty coherent moves. And now uh, most countries want a mixture of security and economic benefits from both the United States and China. Uh, and they, they're, they are not going to just choose to align 100% with the United States against China or Russia or 100% with China against the United States. Here, actually, I think that that really benefits the United States and, and what we're trying to see obtained in the world. What I kind of refer to as the order of the order, you know, the order of within world order, who's sort of on top and things like that. I mean, and there's a lot of talk about you know, is America in decline and and, you know, China's rising and all this stuff. And, you know, we can debate that. But the reality is that the United States still has by far the biggest and most powerful military in the world. Uh, the bases around the world aren't going anywhere. The universities and our innovation economy and our <clears throat> uh, and the kind of capital markets that, uh, that, that fund that aren't going anywhere. The alliances that we have all over the world uh, aren't going anywhere. They could be healthier, but they're not going anywhere. Whereas China, for example, has, um, you know, North Korea and, and maybe Cambodia on a good day as its allies. And, you know, Russia, well, I guess Russia has Belarus. You can tell me how valuable that is these days. Um, but, you know, it doesn't, you know, it, it, it's a very uh, asymmetric power profile that I think is going to endure for some amount of time. The, on, the multiple, on the multilateralism side, I think what you're seeing, however, is what we did see to some degree during the Cold War, which is when you have these bodies where great power uh, competitors are kind of at loggerheads, it just paralyzes them. So, I mean, there were decades during the Cold War when the UN Security Council just couldn't do much. Every now and then it would find a niche issue that it could do something because the United States would be on one side and the Soviet Union would be on the other and one would veto one thing and the other or the other would veto the other thing. And we're, and we're back at that 
at the UN Security Council. So, you know, I mean, we're at, we're at the, you know, the biggest global pandemic in a hundred years and the, you know, we, we, we reached the worst, you know, kind of economic performance since the Great Depression. And yet the UN Security Council couldn't even put out a statement about coronavirus because the US and China couldn't agree on what that statement should say, including about the origins of, of the crisis. You see the same thing at the G20 where, you know, as recently as after the global financial crisis, you had the G20 coordinating fiscal and monetary policy. And now the G20, you know, it had a virtual summit. It issued this great statement about how everybody's going to cooperate, but it was totally abstract. There's not been a single time-bound specific commitment of action, and there's really nothing that's come out of that. Even the G7 has been the same thing for different reasons. It just hasn't been able to galvanize a lot of, of uh, multilateral action. I think the future here of, of some of this is going to be both in existing and new structures, issue-based uh, multilateral cooperation. So, in, you know, in the, in the most recent edition of uh, Issue of Foreign Affairs, I have a little piece that I co-authored on the idea of a T12, a Tech 12 grouping, uh, more or less like the G7, G8 kind of framework, but it would be uh, among like-minded, uh, advanced democratic uh, technology powers that could harmonize their approaches to technology policy, rather than just having kind of generalized, undifferentiated cooperation, um, you know, actually focus on an area in which they're in my mind, are insufficient multilateral um, opportunities for action and build a, a pattern of cooperation around there. And, and I think these more tailored multilateral efforts are going to um, be uh, probably will to some degree replace the more um, generalized groupings that include very different uh, powers that are in competition with each other and find it very hard to come together uh, in common cause against things. I mean, again, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of analogies to the Cold War for the world we're in for a whole variety of reasons, but there's a few lessons that are interesting. And if you look at, you know, when the U.S. and the Soviet Union uh, were, you know, in such fierce competition, there were areas where they cooperated. I mean, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, polio, vaccinations and outbreaks, you know, the, the uh, civilian space cooperation in 1975-76, but it was pretty thin stuff. I mean, it, it was not it was not an everyday kind of thing. It was niche things for some time limit, limited amount of, you know, and, and all of this. And um, but the only ways that, that they were able to sort of come together was on very issue specific things that would allow the competitive side essentially to continue on unchanged. Mm -hmm. So, um, do I understand it correctly that, uh, uh, according to your expectations, there there won't be the case in which uh, the so-called middle powers, and we have many of them right now, um, and these middle powers are doing what right now? They are bas basically balancing between United States and. Uh, China, or while avoiding to take sides, as you pointed out, so basically trying to capitalize on the relations with both countries in various fields, or let's say in domains of common interest, uh, will we come to the point where these middle powers will be confronted with uh, either or choice, where they have to take sides, where this kind of 
uh, controversy within the key domains uh, is going to be so great that they will have to take a clear position because you've also pointed out it's all it's also about democracy it's also about um, a certain understanding of uh, common values and common norms um, and common rules of the game uh, will we face such situation or do you think that it's just going to be a kind of a balanced balanced world in which uh, none of the actors will be actually inclined to you know uh, get involved in uh, in uh, in uh, into offensive, uh, uh, controversial, or military even military conflicts, and uh, will try to somehow mitigate this kind of situation so that there is, you know, uh, like I call it, uh, uh, having the cake and uh, eat it uh, situation. So you can actually capitalize on all opportunities. Uh, is it? Yeah, going towards or yeah so I, I the middle powers will not be able to avoid making choices um, and just kind of keep their head down and keep on going um, but they also are very unlikely to face a sort of an overarching strategic choice like was put to them during the Cold War right so European countries during the Cold War had to either be on the side of NATO on the side of the Warsaw Pact or neutral, right? I mean, had to choose. And that was a grand strategic choice about one's orientation. You could fudge it a little bit on the, on the edges, kind of lean a little bit if you were neutral. But if you're in the Warsaw Pact, you ain't going to lean on one side. If you're in NATO, you're not going to lean to the other side, right? And that was a military sort of alignment, but it stretched across the the politics, the, diplom the diplomacy, the economics, the whole thing. So um, you don't see that now. And, you know, it's not the case that anyone's going to Austria and saying you must be with the United States and against China on everything, or you must be with China or against the United States on, anything, on everything. But it's issue by issue choices that are going to be forced on countries. I mean, take everybody's favorite issue of the last couple of years, Huawei. I mean, countries have to make a decision about whether to allow Huawei infrastructure as part of their 5G networks or not. The United States says you shouldn't. China says you should. You've got to choose, right? Um, you know, the, on, on, you know, some of these values issues, it's less sort of forced to choose, but it's a pretty acute choice nevertheless. I mean, Hong Kong and Xinjiang, you either countries either say nothing, support, or oppose. Oh, okay, those are three choices, right? Um, they could they could say nothing forever, uh, but you know most countries are going to want to take some sort of stand on what is being alleged as genocide in Xinjiang and you know the trampling and extinction of democracy in Hong Kong. So that's pretty big stuff, you know. Um, relations with Taiwan, you know, where does a middle power stand? Well, you've got to make some sort of choice. So some of these choices are avoidable, but not all of them. And again, they're issue by issue choices that are going to be forced on middle powers. And I think some are going to end up making some choices in one direction. Others will make them another. I mean, Huawei is a great example of that. Um, and it's going to be a competitive 
uh, sort of spirit where, you know, the, the great powers are competing for influence in middle powers on issue by an issue by issue basis. And that may actually hand the middle powers um, a degree of, um, of increased sort of influence in, in the world because they can um, take common positions among themselves to some degree. And, and they are kind of the, uh, the ones that are going to be prime movers. Everybody knows what uh, the U.S. position is going to be on Huawei and everybody knows what the Chinese position is going to be on Huawei. Those are not actually terribly interesting. <laughs> the, the interesting ones are are the are the the middle powers um, that are trying to kind of work their way toward answers on some of these tough issues. It's interesting that you mentioned Huawei because uh, just a year ago uh, there wasn't a debate on Huawei in the European capitals. In fact, uh, the majority of European governments were pretty clear on their interest uh, of uh, you know introducing Huawei 5G uh, to, to Europe. And in fact, they were quite unconvinced about uh, Washington's uh, security uh, warnings. And uh, it was, in fact, China's handling of COVID-19 uh, and, uh, you know, uh, all these uh, uh, interesting activities that were launched in European capitals with the assertive Chinese diplom diplomacy, with uh, certain actions uh, towards creating a positive image, and so on and so forth, that rank actually alarm an alarm and created a new, completely new atmosphere. Uh, and right now, we moved from the readiness of having even a non-spy treaty with China in connection to uh, Huawei to actually uh, excluding Huawei from the 5G uh, connectivity uh, in uh, various capitals. I mean, take France, take Germany, take UK. So I think it's a very interesting case to observe as to how this polarization, this bifurcation of the global affairs along these two um, you know, uh, completely different strategies by uh, Washington and uh, Beijing is going to, you know, to develop uh, in the future. Um, but I'm seeing, um, I'm seeing uh, two questions coming from the audience and I want to use the opportunity uh, to ask them to you. The one is uh, related to the election outcome and more, more uh, concretely to um, the Republican Party. Um, so the question goes, uh, do you think that uh, the Republican Party, which uh, has unconditionally, well, been unconditionally endorsing every move of Trump, will, uh, well, will the Republican Party change its uh, attitude towards uh, Trump after the election. Um, and uh, I have another question, which is related to the Middle East. Do you think that the US election outcome will change the US approach to the Middle East, given that uh, you know a peace deal was reached between Israel and the United Arab Emirates? And uh, there are quite uh, some quite positive uh, trends right now in the region. Yeah, so the question about the future of the Republican Party is one that 
at least some of us think about all the time now, and it's a bit unclear uh, where things go, in part because uh, the Republican elected officials, which is the real muscle of the Republican Party, have been um, very pro-Trump um, because Trump wins elections and his support wins elections, even though privately a lot of them disagree pretty significantly with some of his policy positions, including on some of the issues we were, we've been talking about today. Um, you know, part of this will depend on whether Trump wins or loses. If Trump loses, uh, then the election four years ago looks a bit more like a fluke and like there's a way of establishing a constituency that can elect Republicans, including to the White House, that can run on other issues. Um, if he wins, it looks different because it looks like, you know, my former boss, John McCain, ran on a very different kind of platform. He lost. Mitt Romney ran on a very different kind of platform. He lost. Trump ran on Trump's platform and he'll have won twice. Even, however, if he loses, I mean, if he wins, he'll be a lame duck, you know, and, and he can't run again. And uh, so the battle for the future of the Republican Party uh, will begin, you know, within months. Uh, it'll begin even sooner if he loses, but it'll begin within months if he wins. And there, I think you'll see various actors trying to sort of consolidate support for their vision of where the party should go and what it should stand for. And ultimately, it's going to be the voters who decide uh, whether they want a, a Republican Party led by people who are more of the John McCain, you know, internationalist uh, bent that believe in free trade, strong alliances, uh, you know, American exceptionalism and American leadership in the world, you know, a very active American foreign policy, or they believe in a more Trumpian kind of transactional America first, uh, you know, kind of thing. And, and that's just not clear right now. Uh, it, it'll be battled out um, both at a kind of intellectual level among the policy folks, but ultimately at a political level among the voters to see who they support. Um, then it's just kind of up for grabs. On the Middle East, I think uh, certainly, actually I would expect either administration to try to build on the recent uh, normalization success in the Middle East. So now uh, the UAE, Bahrain and Sudan have all, uh, announced uh, normalization with Israel. You know, there are other countries that could be in the next tier that are are um, right for doing so, whether it's uh, Oman or, or Qatar. Um, you know, the big prize is Saudi Arabia, um, but as long as King Salman is on the scene, uh, I, I think that's not going to happen. And then if he departs the scene and, and Mohammed bin Salman is has the ability to make his choice on this particular matter. I think the Saudis are very likely actually to normalize uh, with Israel. But when, you know, when you look around the Middle East, there's so few opportunities for a win in foreign policy. I mean, everything is a, is a choice between right now is a choice between, you know, a bad outcome and a worse outcome. You know, if, if we, if we stay in Iraq or we stay in Syria, it looks like this, but if we leave, it might look even worse, you know, things like that. Um, and so this is one of those rare areas where you can actually see some promise of progress. It's certainly not a panacea. It doesn't solve the Palestinian problems and all these other things, but it's a win and it's, it's a good win. And I, and I think both administrations will try to build on that success. 
Thank you. That was great uh, answer and gave us also a kind of a positive, uh, you know, positive uh, signal, um, a kind of a hope for the future. So uh, with that, I would like to uh, conclude that uh, much is uh, to happen. We are in the middle of uh, great transformational changes, but like you pointed out, also some things will remain. Whether we like it or not, uh, we have to admit that some realities in global affairs are in place. And I really liked uh, your comment that probably we should not stick to Cold War vocabulary because vocabulary because uh, uh, the times uh, are different. There are many, many middle players, middle powers uh, that have a saying in international relations. And it's about, I think, in, in the end, about credibility, about being a loyal, a trustworthy partner. Uh, so um, we are about to find out uh, once we have a clear US election outcome. Uh, until then, I wish you much patience. And uh, you know, I hope that uh, this is going to be over rather sooner than later so that we can also focus on uh, building up the relations between Europe and United States, but also uh, moving on with hopefully a new era in uh, the global affairs, one that is more positive and more uh, optimistic. By saying that, thank you very much for taking the time to participate in my digital talk just today after the US election. Yeah. I wish you I wish you much health, stay safe and sound during the COVID-19 pandemic and I wish you much success in all your undertakings and projects. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's great to be uh, here virtually and uh, I will uh, look forward to keeping in touch once we know the outcome of the presidential election, hopefully once coronavirus starts to subside and uh, let's say next year in Vienna. <laughs> that sounds about right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye-bye.